Let me tell you a story, podcast number 87. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, it was the age of never mind it is a how truth long we You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. I'll begin this podcast by reading from Winds of Wyoming. We'll finish Chapter 27 today. And then Steve will read Tsunami by John Clark Wagner. Time permitting, we'll also throw in Kitchuckles and Martin Luther King quotations. Winds of Wyoming, Chapter 27. Or this actually is the conclusion of Chapter 27. Kate's fork clattered onto her plate. You what? I killed my husband. Dimple's face held no expression. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Dimple flipped her braid behind her neck and picked up her fork. I can't believe it. I won't believe it. Kate backed her chair from the table and wheeled toward the garden. She'd prayed God would send her a good Christian woman to mentor her when she got to Wyoming. Dimple seemed to be that woman. Surely she didn't. God, I can't. Kate? Dimple called. Please, Kate, come sit with me. She slowly rolled to the table. All she could think was, how could you? I'm sorry to shock and disappoint you. Dimple smiled a sad smile. You're the only person in this part of the world, other than my sisters, who knows what I did. But, Kate fought the urge to burst into tears. I didn't know you were married. When I was young, Dimple said, younger than you, I couldn't wait to get away from Copperville. I thought I would die of boredom in this isolated mountain community devoid of nightclubs and movie theaters. I saved my babysitting money all through high school, and as soon as I graduated, I bought a bus ticket to California where I found a job at a taco stand. A faraway look crossed her face. I was enthralled with the ocean and spent hours at the beach every day. I'd walk on the shore or sit on a sand dune to watch the waves roll in and out. Then I fell madly in love with the owner of the taco stand. Raymond said he loved me, too. But I often wondered if he just needed someone who was better with numbers than he was. He had plans to set up stands all the way to New York. Kate's mind still reeled from learning Dimple had murdered a husband she didn't know existed. You really were married? Dimple nodded. How long? A year and a half. What happened? He became abusive. Dimple slid her finger along the edge of the table. At first, I assumed it was my fault. I forgot to put the garlic in the salsa, or I closed the store five minutes early and missed a curtain. Curtain? What I meant to say, the older woman enunciated her words was that when I closed too early, Raymond was convinced we lost customers. Then he started hitting me for practically no reason at all. I took too long in the shower, bought too many groceries, 
talked too much or too little with him or with the customers, etc., etc. She stopped for a sip of water. I've only told this story three times, once to the police, once to the court, and once to my family. It'll take some time. She pointed to Kate's plate. You should finish eating. I'm not sure I can, but Kate picked up her fork. Why are you telling me this? I don't need to know. She didn't want to hear another tale of abuse. She had enough stories of her own. Mostly, she didn't want to believe Dimple had committed a crime worse than anything she'd done. But like catching a cat that had escaped a bag, she couldn't stuff Dimple's revelation with all its dreadful claws and teeth back inside. I have a purpose for telling you this, Dimple's voice broke. I'm not unloading ancient history on you without a reason. Kate took a long breath and released it. Go on. One night... My husband was raging drunk, but not so drunk he couldn't hit me. We went round and round our little apartment. Tears began to run down her cheeks, catching in the wrinkles. Me trying to elude Raymond, Raymond grabbing anything he could get his hands on to throw or swing at me. Oh, Dimple, Kate began to cry too, the thought of her dear friend being chased by an abusive drunk, fearing for her life, broke her heart. He cornered me in the kitchen. Dimple closed her eyes. When she opened them again, she said, I saw him going for the rolling pin on the counter, so I reached my hands behind my back and opened the knife drawer. She paused. I felt inside and grabbed the first knife I could get my fingers around. Then I slid it out and held it at my side. When he came at me again, I... She swallowed I raised the knife, wrapped both hands around the handle, and jabbed it at his abdomen. She looked at her plate. I released my grip when he fell to the floor. For a moment, I stood there, staring at him, staring at me, with a horrified look on his face. He didn't say a word. She shook her head. I will never forget his expression. But then he shut his eyes and I ran out the front door to the next door neighbor's apartment. They knew about our fights, but they knew how it was with us. They called an ambulance and tried to help Raymond, but by the time the medics arrived, he was dead. Kate wished she couldn't picture the scene so vividly. She hadn't killed anyone, but she had fought for her life, and the results were never pretty. I was in jail for a month before I called my parents to ask them to bail me out, Dimple said. One of the hardest things I ever did. She paused, her eyes momentarily blank. Eventually, a jury determined Raymond's death to be self-defense on my part. When the trial was over, I sold the business, donated all our possessions, including most of my clothing, and moved to Laramie to go to school. After I graduated from UW, I returned to Copperville to take care of my parents and teach third grade which I did for 30 years. By now she was hoarse, her voice a whisper. My family never told a soul. You're the first non-relative to hear my story since my court appearance. She blotted her face with a napkin. Kate picked up her own napkin and did the same. I feel honored, but I have to say it hurt when you pop my bubble. Bubble? Yeah, 
the bubble that held Dimple Forbes on a pedestal and dubbed her the most saintly woman in Wyoming. She sniffed and wiped at her nose. Good. Dimple smiled. That's part of my purpose in telling you my story. But there's more. I'm not sure I want to hear it, Kate said. This is the good part, but I'm losing my voice. Dimple got to her feet. I need more water. How about you? Please. Dimple brought ice cubes from the kitchen and filled each of their glasses again. After a long drink, she settled into her chair. When I returned to Copperville, a young mermaid from church, George Jordan, everyone called him J.J., although his initials were G.J., he asked me to go riding with him. We had a good time together and soon became fast friends. Kate smiled. The mermaid must have been a man. J.J. was a very special person. He loved the Lord with all his heart, and he had a wonderful sense of humor. We enjoyed each other so much. On Valentine's Day, he made me a big card. I was touched that he thought of me. After all, we were friends, nothing more. On the inside, he'd written, Roses are red, violets are blue. From the bottom of my heart, dear Dimple, I love you. The I love you line was in big red letters. If that wasn't enough of a surprise, after the poem he wrote, Please marry me, all my love, J.J. Must have been the romantic type, Kate said. He was. Dimple's countenance was soft, her eyes dreaming. But I knew I could never marry him. Kate's mouth dropped open. Why not? Because I was a murderer. But it was self-defense. You were acquitted by a jury. Like you, Dimple said, I couldn't stop labeling myself. Even if no one else knew, I knew I was a murderess. I pictured living every day of our marriage in fear a California friend would call or write and mention Raymond. Worse yet, they might visit. Or maybe I'd get a notice from the court, or a reporter could call asking about the murder. Or I'd talk in my sleep. I was terrified by the thought of what I might do to J.J. if we had an argument. What if we had children, and I did something horrific to them? Oh, Temple, not you. We're all capable of great evil. Dimple folded her hands on the table. J.J. asked me time and time again to marry him. I told him my final no the day I got to thinking about how scary it would be to live with a woman who killed her first husband. If he found out, he might not trust me might be afraid to go to sleep at night, might want a divorce. Once again, tears coursed through the gullies of her cheeks. I'll never forget the look on his face when I asked him to stop asking. I broke both our hearts that day. Kate wiped her eyes again. She'd never heard anything so sad. Every Valentine's Day, Dimple's red lips drooped. Every single Valentine's Day for the next 37 years, J.J. sent me a handmade card. Each poem, except the last one, started with roses are red, violets are blue. And each one broke my heart all over again. Yet, I still look forward to receiving them. You mean he never married? No, and I feel responsible that he never found happiness in that way. Yet he once told me he was content with our friendship. What happened after 37 years? 
he died. Oh, Kate blew her nose. That's too bad. J.J. is buried next door in the church cemetery. A bit ironic, don't you think? I visit his grave every day. So that's where you disappear to every now and then. Dimple nodded. He died the day before Valentine's Day last year while writing me a note. I still have it in my bedroom. The others are in a box in the attic. She pushed herself to her feet and hobbled into the house. When she returned, she handed Kate an envelope. Kate slid the card out, opened it, and smiled at the picture on the front, one of bright red Indian paintbrush surrounded by sagebrush. Did J.J. take the picture? He loved to photograph wildflowers and wildlife, Dimple said. On the inside, in a large, wobbling scrawl, Dimple's lifelong love had written, My dearest Dimple, have you heard the song, A Daisy a Day? If you and I had... The scrawl slouched into a scribble and slid off the edge of the card. How sad, Kate sniffed. He didn't finish it. Sheriff Gilmer brought the card to me, said I might as well have it. J.J.'s relatives would throw it out. Her lips quivered. I cried and cried after I read it. My only consolation is knowing he's deliriously happy in heaven, and I'll meet him there someday. But Dimple, if only... Dimple reached across the table to take Kate's hand. That's the point, Kate. If only I had followed my heart. God in the state of California and my family forgave my crime. I knew that in my head, but I refused to let it sink into my soul. I was a free woman, yet I allowed myself to remain a prisoner of my past. I don't want that to happen to you. I want more for you, so much more. Be open, be honest with yourself and with others. Face your history so you can have a future, so you can live your dream. And if God leads you to a relationship with Mike, allow him to share your dream. Kate rubbed the condensation on her glass. The Mike part sounded good, but no way would she tell him or anyone else about her past. I'm going to read selected sections from the first 30 pages of John Clark Wagner's book called Tsunami. They had sailed up the coast from Rio to Fortaleza and from there had struck out across the Atlantic bound for Lisbon. The 45-foot yacht was well equipped for solo ocean sailing and Carlos was a skilled and experienced sailor. He had made the crossing from Lisbon to Rio alone earlier in the year. Now he returned home with Linda, his future bride whom he had met at Impanema Beach and with whom he had spent a most enjoyable summer. They had crossed the equator and were back in the northern hemisphere, and it was spring again. After midnight with a yacht on autopilot, they sailed the starboard tack close to the wind, and with a steady wind and a favorable sea, they lounged lazily on a blanket on the foredeck, sipping wine, laughing, gossiping about their friends in Rio. The man glanced at his wristwatch, rose from the blanket and took the helm. We're close now, he said, studying the horizon to starboard where the canopy of stars melded with the sea. Suddenly the girl said, 
Carlos, there, I see a light. He glanced at her, then followed her gaze. There, there, she pointed. Ah, yes, there it is, La Palma, he said. I can just make out the mountains against the stars. We are right on time. How is that for navigation, my darling? Very impressive. My compliments, Captain. He adjusted the heading, trimmed the sails, and rejoined her on the blanket. They sailed another hour, keeping the feeble light, now joined by others, off the starboard quarter, noting their barely perceptible creep toward the stern of the boat as they bore on toward Lisbon. Suddenly, an enormous rolling wail of noise swept over them, a prolonged, terrible, rumbling thunder, which shook the air and trembled the very ocean. The girl leaped, startled, to her feet. "'What is that?' she cried out. "'I don't know,' Carlos muttered as he snatched up binoculars and swept the horizon toward the islands. I don't see the shore lights. The islands. Something is obstructing my view. What's happening, Carlos? I'm frightened. Linda stood close to him, clutching his arm. Suddenly he cried out, It's a mountain of water coming at us. Quickly, get in your vest. We must abandon ship. The life preservers lay at their feet on the blanket. When they were on deck, either they were wearing their vest or they were immediately available. The mountain of water was visible now in the moonlight, nearly upon them, moving at awesome speed. Jump for it! Jump! Roy Hofstadter woke to the sound of labored breathing and snores in the big dark room on the lower east side of Manhattan. He was about to protest loudly, to hold someone accountable when he became aware of a commotion on the street outside the window. Through the gap between the drapes, he could see that it was still dark outside, yet the noise sounded like mid-morning traffic. He tossed aside the blanket and set his feet down upon the linoleum. He was fully dressed in faded khaki shirt and trousers. His shoes and socks shared the cot with him, the laces tied together, the socks stuffed inside the shoes. A canvas backpack also shared his cot. He glared about the room, seeing only shapes in the darkness. He considered the threat to the security of his possessions should he leave them unattended while he investigated the racket outside the window. Curiosity overcame his concern for his property, and he crept to the window and pulled a drape gently to the side so as not to stir up the dust. He peered down on the street from the vantage point on the second floor. Too much traffic out there, he said. He continued watching, his brow furrowed, as moments later a low, undulating siren from somewhere far across the city added to the street noise, becoming shriller as it got up to speed. Uh-oh, something's up for sure, he mumbled, and raised the crud-encrusted window enough to lean out onto the sill. A man hurried along the sidewalk. Roy called out imperiously, You there! Yes, you! What's going on out there? The man glanced back over his shoulder and, without slowing his pace, yelled, Big wave coming this way! What? What do you mean, big wave? He called after the man, who was walking away rapidly toward uptown. Hey, turn on your TV, the man responded. It's on the news. 
Roy pulled himself back inside and lowered the window. Television, he muttered with a disapproving scowl. Degenerate propaganda garbage. Roy did not watch television. He crawled back under the blanket. Big wave coming, big wave coming, continued as a rhythmic chant in his mind. He drew the blanket up to his chin and clutched his backpack to his chest, both for security. What the man had said had alarmed him, and to keep it from falling out of the cot onto the floor, where the scavengers and thieves can have at it. Roy's attention span was unreliable, as was his memory. His mind tended to wander, seldom resting for very long on any one thing. His mood was volatile as well. Sometimes he was silent, gloomy, and introspective. Other times he was bold and even frivolous. Now he was feeling feisty and defiant. Once he had been a well-respected sociologist, a tenured university professor, until he had experienced a breakdown which required institutionalization, or so they said. He had disagreed, but had been overruled. It's political, he said. They want me out. I am tenured. I am not crazy. You can't do this to me. However, they could and did. They subjected him to various treatments, including shock treatments of one kind or another. They kept him doped up on antidepressants and tranquilizers for months and counseled with him until he could see the appropriate number of fingers. Ha! Finally, they had thrust him back out into society, weak and timorous, with his brain scrambled and with a tenuous hold on reality, whatever that is. Consequently, his attention span came and went for no immediately discernible reason. In any event, another thought now leapt into his consciousness. Supplanting the current one, the new thought had to do with something he had planned to do tomorrow. But wait, was it tomorrow? He asked himself in a low, confidential voice. Or was it today? He glanced at the clock over the doorway onto the hallway to verify that it was well past midnight. Yes, it was today, because I thought of it yesterday, and yesterday is now today. No, wait, tomorrow is now today. Oh, whatever. What did I plan to do today? It was something very important to do with my research. Yes, something to do with my research. They institutionalized him for the better part of two years. They would not even let me shave myself, he thought. Then seven years ago, they decided that he was not a danger to himself or others, so they let him go. Since his discharge, he has been engaged in a protracted research project. The research has to do with the observation of human absurdity, which addresses the question, what will the fools do next? In the beginning, because his research was so revealing of the shortcomings of his subjects, all of humanity, others were skeptical of it. The fools? Therefore, he had elected to self-fund his project rather than to accept funding from institutions or the government, especially not the government. He drew disability payments from the government. <laughs> they have to pay to keep me alive. In addition, he received occasional modest royalties from two sociology textbooks published 12 years ago. After a while, Roy remembered the 
big wave coming, still not having resolved the issue of what he planned to do tomorrow. He poked his head out from under the cover and unzipped the flap of his pack a few inches, stuck in his hand and brought out a small radio. He slipped the earpiece into his ear, pushed the power button, and turned the dial to a clear station where he heard an excited male voice. Unconfirmed report. Earthquake. Ocean floor. Northwest coast of Africa. He instantly perked up and focused, as best he could, sensing a possible absurdity in the making. Tsunami moving at a high speed toward the east coast of the Americas. The east coast of the Americas, Roy snorted. Of course it's the east coast. It wouldn't be the west coast. Even though certain of Roy's mental faculties were impaired intermittently, for whatever reason, his vast store of knowledge acquired over a lifetime of study and observation and his ability to reason were intact and accessible much of the time. Nothing is certain, the excited voice continued. We are seeking confirmation. Roy clicked off the radio and mulled over what he remembered about tsunami caused by undersea earthquakes, recalling that such waves seldom were more than 15 or 20 feet high, usually less. Still, the idea of a 20-foot wave lapping up down at the battery and splashing up down both thrilled and pleased him. I really must observe this. I must record the reaction of the people. Transglobal Flight 373, en route from Tehran to New York City, was minutes out of New York and letting down to traffic pattern altitude. On board, in the first-class section, Joe Conway, Director of Intergovernmental Affairs for the Middle East for the United States National Security Agency, heard the ding and glanced up to see the Fasten Seatbelt sign. He handed his glass to a passing attendant and fastened his seatbelt. He was tired and still had a long way to go to get to his Georgetown townhouse outside of Washington, D.C. He reflected wearily on his trip to Iran, a week-long conference on Middle East stability. Many of the same old animosities still plagued the region of the Middle East. The giant Boeing 747 broke through a thin overcast. In the distance, and to the right, were the shoreline of Long Island, and beyond that, the skyline of New York City. He peered sleepily out the window as the airline began a long, straight-in approach to Kennedy International Airport. The landing gear came down with a clunk, and as it did, Conway experienced a bizarre and frightening sensation. It was as if the plane were falling toward the ocean, yet his body experienced none of the tactile sensations one might expect from so abrupt a change in flight altitude. Nevertheless, out the window, the sea rushed up under the belly of the airplane, which his senses told him was impossible. Someone screamed. The plane surged forward and began climbing. What's going on? he asked. Looked around the cabin, dumbfounded. People were straining to look out the windows. The captain's voice came over the speakers, filled with alarm and emotion. Ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to believe this. A wave, a giant ocean wave, has swept over Kennedy Airport. It is completely underwater, and New York City... Holy... Will you look at that? 
The low elevations of the coastal lands around Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac River estuary conspired with the unheard-of magnitude of the tsunami to wreak a terrible toll on the cities, towns, and villages, including the nation's capital, Washington. Many people died in their sleep, many over their first cup of coffee or driving early to work. Within minutes of the initial wave, the traffic copter of TV station WQAF which was already airborne in anticipation of another heavy traffic day on the interstates and bypasses, was approaching downtown D.C., or more accurately, where downtown D.C. was minutes before. In normal times, the strict airspace prohibitions would not have permitted its presence there without the risk of encountering fighter interceptors. Today, all the rules vanished, along with much of the city and the people. The helicopter pilot and the camera operator achieved a measure of fame that morning, as networks around the world picked up the feed of their on-the-spot coverage of the disaster. They would each later receive a prize for TV journalism and video photography. Clarence White, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, lived outside of Washington with sufficient distance and elevation to be out of the path of the flood. An early riser, He awoke peacefully, unaware of the drama unfolding scant miles away. He got the coffee maker going, and while he waited, he flicked on the little TV on the kitchen counter to catch the news and traffic information in anticipation of his drive to the court. The first thing he saw was chaos in the TV newsroom itself, complete bedlam. It took him a few startled moments to get his bearing and clean what was happening. Reports coming in from the helicopters played continually with dramatic live footage. Everyone in the station seemed to be talking at the same time, yelling, cutting in on each other, breathless, frantic, and hysterical. Justice White, mesmerized, could only stare at the screen in shock and amazement. A reporter wailed, The Capitol is gone! Washington, D.C. is in ruins! It was then that sirens began sounding more than one, muffled and far away. His wife of 50 years, Helen, ran down the stairs. What's all the racket, Clarence? Unbelievable, Helen. Terrible. Take a deep breath and prepare yourself before you look at the television. Justice White and Helen continued watching for almost an hour, during which time White attempted several times to make telephone calls to government officials, but each time the line was either dead or busy, or out of order. The same was true of his cell phone. As the situation continued to develop, he concluded that most everybody in the city proper and surrounding lowlands was probably dead, drowned, crushed, and swept away. The TV station reported that military personnel from Fort Meade had flown by helicopters to what was left of the White House and were searching for survivors. They found none. They were attempting to gain access to the elaborate underground facilities beneath the White House, but so far had not succeeded. The fear was that no timely warning was received by the occupants and that the underground facilities went unused. The fate of the vice president and his family and staff at their residence on the grounds of the National Observatory was not yet known. Helen, Justice White said, do you realize that the country may be leaderless? that the president, the vice president, all of them may be dead? Everybody was here. Congress was in session. If so, the United States is vulnerable to enemy attack at this very moment. Moreover, we are vulnerable to public panic 
which could be just as bad. Why have there been no announcements over the emergency broadcast system? Has that been knocked out too? He switched through the television channels. Most of them were off the air. He found none with the emergency broadcast going, just station and network news coverage from outlying stations. Where is my radio, Helen? The little red one with the hand crank. It has an emergency broadcast band. Calm down, Clarence, or you'll have another heart attack. Try to relax. I'll make you some breakfast. I couldn't eat a bite now, dear, and there's no time anyway. I have to get dressed and get down to that television station. He tried the telephones again before leaving. They were still inoperative. He drove the few miles to the television station through heavy traffic. The parking garage and the lot at the TV station were packed. He found a space on the street a block away and hurried back to the station, moving fast for a man of 75, with his white hair bouncing and blowing in a slight breeze. People milled about outside the building in animated conversation, but inside in the lobby, even though crowded, things were now more orderly and subdued, as if the people waited for some solemn pronouncement that they dreaded to receive. White presented his Supreme Court identification to the woman at the desk. I urgently need to speak to the station manager, he said. It's very important. The woman examined his identification. One moment, sir, she said. She punched buttons on the intercom and spoke into it. Mr. Trevor will be right here, sir. Moments later, Mr. Trevor burst through double swinging doors, beside which stood a uniformed, armed security guard. Trevor was a beefy man of perhaps 40 in shirt sleeves. His tie was open and askance. He charged over to the receptionist. She nodded in White's direction. The man turned and approached Justice White and said, Yes, sir, what can I do for you? May I speak to you in private, Mr. Trevor? Come with me, Trevor said without hesitation. He led the way through the swinging doors down the hall and into a vacant office. He offered White a chair and sat opposite him, waiting expectantly for him to speak. It appears that the nation's capital has been destroyed. I have tried all morning but have been unable to reach any officials of the government. The fate of our leaders is unknown. There is a good possibility that they are all dead. If so, the country is extraordinarily vulnerable just now. I understand, sir. Go on. It is essential that we do our best to maintain government continuity during this tragedy, or at least the appearance of it, so as not to tempt our potential enemies as well as to reassure our own citizens that someone is in charge. I want to try to contact government officials over your television station and, if successful, meet up with them somewhere nearby. Will you help me? Yes, of course I will help you. It is an honor to do so. You can make your announcements from a studio in the back. The government officials can call into the station. I will dedicate telephone lines. We can set it up quickly. Just say the word. Excellent. Let's do it then. Right now. Come with me. They hurried down the hall into a darkened studio. Trevor switched on the lights. You sit there at the desk, he said, while I round up some people to get this thing on the road. He flipped out his cell phone and made three calls in quick succession. Almost immediately, people began pouring into the room, turning on equipment, pushing the caster-mounted cameras about. Trevor called from across the room. Whenever you're ready, Justice White. Do you want to make a practice run? No, let's go for it. The cameras and the sound man got into position. 
The lighting was adjusted. A man with a clipboard said, I'll count down from five. The man began to count. At the count of one, he dropped his hand and pointed his finger at White. Good morning, fellow citizens of the United States. I am Clarence White, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. By now, you probably know that this morning our nation experienced an extraordinary, destructive act of nature. A giant tsunami wave has wreaked destruction upon the eastern coastal region of our nation with great loss of life and destruction of property. The nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and environs have not escaped this destruction. We do not know the fate of all of our nation's leaders at this moment, but it is imperative for those of us in government who survive to come together quickly to maintain the continuity of government during this emergency. I take it upon myself to speak on behalf of the government of the United States and the office of the President. I ask all government officials within the sound of my voice, especially those who live and work in or near Washington, D.C., to call this television studio and report your name, position, agency, and your current location and telephone number. A young woman ran up close to the desk, out of camera range, holding up a hastily constructed cue card to Justice White, displaying the telephone number to call. White read the number three times and closed by saying, May God preserve and protect the United States of America. Featuring Kid Chuckles again, I recorded these when our children were eight, six, and three. Let's see. Toby was six when he said, God can reach clear from here to California and even to Mexicota. And um, Brady, at age three, while rolling on the floor, said, I'm doing my hippie sizes. We had a new neighbor, and Toby told him, I call my mom Becky Faye Lyles. Now there's a way to meet your new neighbor. (laughs) Uh, We were at a friend's house, and Brady said, Mrs. Dobson's lunch was gracious. When passing a giant rooster in front of a restaurant on the Greeley Highway, Toby said, that is not cute. And he was right. <laughs> Elisa, at age eight, got a toy oven at a garage sale. She asked if we had cake mixes that she could use. I said, no, we cook from scratch. And she said, well, get some scratch and let's get started. (laughs) And then after baking three cakes and partying with her brothers, she said she felt like a mom doing all that. And since she felt that way, could she be Toby and Brady's boss? I told her I didn't think they'd appreciate that. But she countered with, They don't appreciate you bossing them either, which (laughs) that's eight-year-old logic for you. So those are all the kid chuckles from now, but more another time. Here are five quick quotes from Martin Luther King, Jr., 
I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. An individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? And that is going to take us out. As always, thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.